Hey, peace, Nicks. Today's guest is Scott Dice. He's an author specializing in organized crime and the mafia. Scott has written seven books and over 50 articles on organized crime for local and national magazines and newspapers. He has been featured on History Channel, A&E, Discovery Channel, AHC, C-SPAN, and Oxygen Network. And I had a great conversation with him. His new book is Hitman, the Mafia, Drugs, and the East Harlem Purple Gang. He lives in Tampa, so he's not far from us here in Fort Myers. He's up in Tampa, and he uh, talked a lot about the Mafia in Tampa and Ebor, and I thought it was pretty cool, things I didn't know, uh, the Mafia presence up there in Tampa. Talks about Miami, talks about New York, Atlantic City, some history. We talk, we talk about the, the ways that um, illegal drug market has affected the Mafia, has affected uh, different areas of our culture. Um, you know, we talk about the, all the mythology around, you know, the mafia and the movies and television shows. So really cool conversation. I'm glad I got to talk to him. I know you're going to enjoy this. Before we dive in, real quick, if you want to smoke a hemp cigarette that doesn't taste like shit, this is their motto, and I agree with them. Go to sugarcali.com. Get some hemp cigarettes. It's a great alternative to tobacco, nicotine-free you can enjoy a cigarette while having your favorite beverage, and they have original flavor, vanilla, and mint. All three are good. I've tried all three. I honestly do enjoy them. Go to sugarcali.com, enter the offer code PEACE15, P-E-A-C-E-15, to get 15% off and help support the podcast. Also, if you like Kratom, as I do, and you buy Kratom, you can go to happyhippoherbals.com. They have really good prices on the powder. They have yellow vein, white vein, red vein, green vein. They have taffy. They have chewables. They have little shot bottles you can buy. Um, but if you like Kratom, you use Kratom, go to happyhippoherbals.com and enter the offer code THEPEACE15 to get 15% off your Kratom needs. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Peace on Drugs podcast. You're going to like this conversation with Scott Dice. Again, his new book, you can get it on Am- um, Amazon. You can get it uh, Barnes & Noble. His new book is Hitman, The Mafia, Drugs, and the East Harlem Purple Gang. So let's go ahead and dive in to this episode of the Peace on Drugs podcast with Scott Dice. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. All right. So, Scott, it's good to finally meet you. Good to meet you as well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is awesome. I um, I started reading your book that you sent me. Thanks for sending that. The um, uh, Hitman, your new novel. Or not novel. I'm sorry. It'd be, it would be more a biography or... Yeah, nonfiction book. Yeah, nonfiction True book. crime. True crime. True crime. Yeah. There you go. And also, I'm listening. I got your book on Audible, the um, Garden, State, uh, Garden State Gangland. I'm trying to get caught up because we moved the podcast a week week ahead, so I try to cram some of the some of it in. And I find I have a hard time following um, the mafia stuff because it's, it's there's so many characters, different families and names, and you're trying to keep track of everything. It's like trying to keep track, you know, like Game of Thrones, except for you know just as gruesome, but 
more characters. And um, but the the general idea of the, I mean, it's really fascinating. And uh, you seem to, you know, spent most of your life studying this stuff. So let me start with with that. What, what got you into writing about the mafia? And are you from that area up around New York? Yeah, I was born in New Jersey. Uh, grew up there. Um, uh, growing up, my mom liked watching the old mob movies. Uh, we used to get the news from New York City. So like I remember when Paul Castellano was shot and killed, that coming over the news. And, you know, it was always kind of around there. My uh, paternal grandfather was a, a sports bookmaker, a legal bookmaker for a while. Um, it was really after I saw the movie Goodfellas, I since relocated at that time to St. Uh, Pete, Florida for college. And uh, so Goodfellas in the movies, and I was like, wow, this was great. I want to read the book this was based on. And I picked up uh, the book Wise Guy, and then I just started reading about it. And it really just started off as kind of a general interest thing. Um, and then I, uh, so like mid-95, I think, I was online when there wasn't really much online, but there was this text-only mafia website. People would just throw up information about the mob. And there was a, a gentleman on there, David Critchley from England, who we started corresponding. He says, hey, I have these congressional hearings that took place in Tampa in 1950, the Kefauver hearings. He says, I see you're down there. Would you like to read them? They're all about the mob in Tampa. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds interesting. And then he sent me that. And that kind of opened the door. That's when it started veering from casual interest to obsession, <laughs> borderline, yeah. uh, and then from there, I started really digging in the first couple books and most of the early stuff I wrote was primarily about the, the mafia in Tampa and Florida. And that have since expanded out from there. That's fascinating. And you don't hear a lot about the mob in Florida as much, you know, it's all New York and stuff, but I guess is Florida kind of like a place where they seek refuge, go into hiding or try to change their identity or. Yeah. So you had two things going on for you at Tampa, which actually had its own homegrown mafia family with ties back to Sicily and ties to New Orleans and New York. So they were an actual Florida-based crime family. And then the Miami, South Florida area was what they called an open city. So you had mobsters from all over the country going down there, whether it was New York or Boston, Chicago, Detroit. Uh, in fact, in the early 80s, uh, they estimated over 600 mafia guys from all around the country were spending at least part of the year in South Florida, you know, down in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. Yeah. Now I wonder if that was, is it, were they there for the palm trees or to move cocaine? I mean, they were a bit of both. Yeah. So, the, you know, it started on really in the South Florida area, uh, started primarily during prohibition, but, but actually the earlier drug stuff you see was out of Tampa. They were running uh, heroin and morphine via Havana in the 1920s while they were bringing in shipments of rum and, you know, illegal booze, there, Tampa was a huge early kind of part of the narcotics pipeline in the United States. In fact, in 1925, it's estimated that Tampa was the second largest port of entry, second to New York for illegal narcotics uh, in the really? United States. See, and everybody would have assumed Miami. And I've even heard, I, I'm in Lee County, um, Fort Myers. So I've heard that the Clusahatchee was another place that would come right in. So all, you know, all coming through from middle America to South America up through Florida. Yeah. And, and, but the South Florida Miami stuff is, really starts kicking off in the seventies. So um, really that's the rise of there. First you start with the Cuban organized crime groups that come over after Castro and then, you know, the cocaine cowboys. And there's a lot of marijuana smuggling all throughout Florida in the seventies. A lot of the fishing villages, you hear that. 
Yeah. And one thing you said in um, your book was um, that one of the great myths, you said one of the great myths perpetuated by Hollywood movies is that the mob shied away from narcotics and nothing could be further from the truth. And it's, it's weird because I've always associated the mob with drugs because the the work I'm doing in the books that I'm reading, I immediately, you know, there was even a theory that Anslinger was working with the mob when he outlawed drugs because of how much they benefited, though there's no evidence to support that. But um, it's just correlations there because, I mean, the mob immediately made, you know, benefited so much from the legal trade. But, um, but and I didn't think about it till you said that, that I, when I think about mobs in the movie, I think about them taking trucks full of you know, Armani suits or jewelry or selling this or that, or even selling cigarettes over selling heroin. In the, and why, why is it that Hollywood doesn't portray the mob as, as the drug peddlers that they were? I, I think a lot of that, certainly if you look back, even the Godfather, there's a scene in there where that, you know, there's not a lot of drug activity, but that's kind of one of the core plot points is them wanting to get into drugs. Um, I, I think some of that information wasn't quite as readily available back then because the mob was so it was so focused on labor racketeering, um, you know, gambling. You know, gambling was a huge moneymaker for organized crime. Prohibition era with the liquor, that I th- I think it it wasn't as widely known how involved they were in narcotics, and that really didn't start coming out into the 1970s when it really became apparent that even going back to the early 19 teens. You know, the early mafia guys, even someone like Arnold Rothstein, were heavily involved in, in the drug trade uh, out of Europe. Arnold Rothstein, Rothstein um, he was he was the, a Jewish guy, right? That uh, mm-hmm. I think I read about him in um, Johan Hari's book. He did a whole piece on that guy. He was pretty hardcore, but it didn't end well for him as it doesn't with a lot of them. Yeah, very few of them, uh, you know, retire in their own beds. <laughs> I know it's crazy because you think, you know, they work, they make all this money, have all this success, but it's, there's always somebody ready to take them out and take their place. And, and we see the same thing happening with, uh, you know, the narcos in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, the cartels in Mexico, where they're just, there's a lot of money and a lot of riches, but there's not a lot of long lived happy lives out of it. Yeah. Uh, you see it more with the older mafia guys uh, before law enforcement really became entrenched in FBI started going after him. So a lot of the older ones, you know, passed the ones that didn't get killed, just, you know, ended up dying in their own beds. But, but certainly as years went on, it was either prison or, you know, <laughs> the morgue for a lot of them, not all, but, but enough that, yeah, you're, like you said, it's like, yeah, not always a happy ending. Yeah. So um, back to the drug thing, um, the, the heroin trade. So one thing that was really interesting in your book, we were talking about, it says, see, it seems like almost all of the heroin in the U S was moving through one street in Harlem. Um, and, and I found that really fascinating because, you know, you think there's a, a heroin trade kind of grew from there. When did the heroin trade, really, heroin trade really start taking off in the United States? Was that the, like the late sixties? Well, yeah, I mean, you can, you can look at the mob's involvement back to the 1920s with heroin coming to the United States. And, and really, it starts really kicking into gear in terms of the mafia's involvement, especially because they were the early suppliers um, and which commonly became known and made famous in a movie is the French Connection. Mm-hmm. So you had Corsican gangsters in Corsica and France uh, out of Marseille refining heroin that was being brought out from the Middle East, Afghanistan, or, or you know, other, the opium poppy fields, and it was being shipped into the United States. It was primarily uh, Corsican gangsters on the European side and wise guys on the U.S. side. And 
you know, the, the movie The French Connection came out in 72, but the original case is in the early 60s when, when that went down. And immediately in the aftermath of that, you just saw all these other mafia guys moving into, into play. So the, the street you're talking about is Pleasant Avenue in East Harlem. And, and East Harlem was predominantly an Italian area of Harlem. And that was kind of the epicenter for the mafia's heroin operations in the late 60s and early 70s. You also at that time kind of see that shift, though, moving from the European supply to the Southeast Asian supply. And, you know, that that's when things start changing in terms of the dominant ethnic organized crime groups that are controlling the drug trade. Yeah. And that's something I was going to bring up was um, after the uh, you know, after they break, they broke up the Italian mobs and started shutting them down. And they shut down the you know the Turkish and French connection that the drug supply chains shifted. Now the Italians still had pretty pretty much control, but now there were other you know the Puerto Ricans and African American groups. They were now moving into the trade, and the trade shifted from like you said from the French connection to going into the Asian markets and stuff like that. So, and we're still seeing the same thing today. They call it a the DEA refers to it as like a game of whack a mole. Anytime you you stop it here, it just kind of sprouts up over here, and there's just are not really able to efficiently ever stop the supply from coming in. They can just shift it. Yeah. 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 In fact, uh, you know, Nikki Barnes, who's really well known as one of the big African-American drug kingpins in the, the 1970s out of Harlem, his main supplier was Matthew Madonna, um, who is a member of the Lucchese family. I actually didn't become a member till, till much later, but in the, in the seventies, he was one of the premier suppliers to, to Nikki Barnes and his operation. So you, you started seeing, uh, you know, partnerships and, and deals with the Cubans and the Italians and the Puerto Ricans and the African-Americans all kind of, you know, where, where there was money to be made and they weren't really fighting over turf because there was so much money to be made. You see them operating together a lot. Yeah. And so I'm wondering when the DEA does these busts and, and it forces the, you know, the, the spread, you know, the markets kind of diversify and spread out. Um, we see a lot of the negative impact of these busts because immediately there's turf wars, there's violence, there's, you know, different gangs have to get harder to take over certain things. And this happens, each new generation can prove that they're even tougher and harder and more violent to not be messed with. And um, so we see the negative impacts of these busts. But do, are there, do you think there are any positive impacts where these busts actually do stop some of the flow versus just causing the violence and causing the flow to move around and still come in? Well, yeah, I think if you look at individual groups, so uh, get back to the mafia, for instance, let's look at in Florida, you had um, Tampa mafia boss, Santo Traficante. He had kind of a crew of Cuban gangsters that had come over in 1960 after Castro took over. And they were running some of the early drug operations in, um, in Miami uh, area. And then federal law enforcement started really cracking down on the mafia. So they really push the mob out of the wholesale supply business. Now, to your argument, yeah, other groups kind of jumped in there and took over, but they were able to kind of really, they're very successful in kind of pushing the mafia out of, of being a major player because you don't see the mafia involved, especially in South Florida in the cocaine era, really hardly at all, maybe at a street level deal or, or small time. But, you know, that's when the Colombians and the Cubans kind of move in into those rackets. So the, it wasn't so much success of reducing the supply. It was success of getting entrenched groups, to some extent, out of the game. Hey, but you know, it almost feels like, oh, there's my dog. Um, it almost feels like if the um, 
if the mob hadn't lost the control, that there might have been a better control factor of the street drugs. Because as new groups take over, they get the, the drugs get right now are getting saturated with fentanyl and everything else, which that's a whole different issue coming from the cartels and, and about manufacturing costs and um, the cost of bringing over a smaller amount. But when you had when you had the mafia in control, I feel like there was a certain level of they almost had a business business uh, business ethic to what they were doing, even though what they were doing was illegal, they still had a standard of business. And then when you break them up and you push them out of the trade, smaller gangs take over the trade and you just get more diluted and higher expensive, dangerous drugs on the streets. Is there, is there any possible truth to that? Or is that just, you know? Um, I, I don't, That that's kind of hard to say because a lot of the, mob, I'm sorry about the dog. Uh, is, that, is that your dog? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was my dog. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's all right. Um, Yeah, I think there's some truth to that in the sense that, um, and I would say not just the the mafia, but even like some of these early Cuban gangs that were really kind of more hierarchical structure. And then with the newer groups come in, you you have more amorphous gangs that are kind of operating in and out and in and out. it's kind of hard to say because I think there would have been a natural attrition of the mafia out of the drug rackets anyway, just because of the demographic changes, at least we'll take in South Florida, for example, you know, a lot of the mafia guys were operating in Miami in the sixties, and then they start moving up into Fort Lauderdale and, and Palm beach. I think also the, the, the advent of the RICO act and, and some of the p- penalties for, um, for getting caught with drugs really starts to dissuade some of them from getting involved in it. Uh, the other thing you have too is the real huge rise in the number of informants and, and people that become, you know, government witnesses against organized crime. And a lot of that stems from the, the exceedingly high penalties on, on especially drugs. In fact, you look at uh, someone like uh, in the Gambino family, Angelo Ruggiero gets you know, busted for heroin. He'd be, you know, he, goes away, him and some of the Gaudis go away for, for you know, dozens of years. And faced with these kind of penalties, you see a lot of wise guys start to start to flip. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's hard to say if, um, if, if it would have been better if they, you know, there's kind of like this weird mythology and not to get off on a segue of, of we'll use Vegas. Like Vegas was better when the mob ran it. Eh, that's kind of hard to say because it was a different time. There are other factors happening. So it's kind of hard to say whether they would have been, the mafia would have been better stewards of the drug trade uh, per se. Yeah. But I think one of the differences with Vegas would be is that the mafia controlled Vegas, Vegas gambling is legal there. So the mafia, Mm -hmm. so we don't need it on the black market. We don't need a group like the mafia to control it. And it would be a perfect idea. We don't want the mafia to control the drug trade either. I want it to be a legal drug trade that's regulated Mm -hmm. properly. But if if it's going to be in the black market, I think a a more um, organized group would be better than just these little makeshift groups that are what we have now. And also because of all the busts, it created just a whole culture of paranoia with the mob and with anybody running from somebody or drugs from, through the mob. So you have people getting shot who are just suspected of possibly being informants. Some of them were informants. Some of them might've been wrongly assumed to be informants. And even growing up when I would go to try to find pot to buy from somebody, if I did, you know, I felt nervous, like they're going to think I'm a cop. So I'm trying to act like I'm not a cop, which is making me act weirder. And then it's just this whole culture of paranoia that that makes the drug trade just dark and icky you know yeah absolutely and and i think that's even broken down more uh, over the years um 
with so many newer groups getting involved in the drug trade and, and other kinds of drugs. One of the things that you might find interesting, I was interviewing a um, someone in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York for my book, and he was saying how the mafia now, it's all uh, opioids that the gang, you know, the, the younger wise guys are getting involved in, uh, which is, you know, potentially even more damaging, far more damaging than trafficking marijuana back in the 70s, for sure. Um, so you start seeing some of the revolt, resultant violence from, from that, for sure. And I wonder what, what drives them to the, um, the opioid trade now, because I guess it's if you look at big pharma with the, you know, the whole Purdue scandal and they getting getting everybody addicted to opioids and then cutting off the supply, forcing everybody who wasn't able to just stop taking them when the doctor stopped prescribing, forcing them to the streets. Now you have a whole new market of opiate addicts that are looking to buy street drugs. At the same time, you have a new drug, fentanyl, that is really cheap and really strong that you can get a small amount across the border and then dilute and to make up a huge amount. So the profit margins are just extreme right now, but also the death rates are going sky high because it's extremely dangerous. Yeah, I just read, I just saw something online the other day about the, the, the huge rise in, in fentanyl overdoses uh, in the U.S. Yeah, the CDC um, um, said 100,000 last 12 months. I've had different guests say that those numbers are exaggerated. They gave the reasons they said they're exaggerated. And I understand that, but I also could see how it could be the opposite. I, the numbers are high either way. Yeah. Even if it's half that, that's, that's still a lot of people that are. It's crazy. And also some people are dying and this is a little off subject, but just um, because of the misinformation on fentanyl, fentanyl is extremely potent and can be extremely deadly, but it can't be inhaled or coming through your skin. But cops hear this and you had cops having panic attacks thinking they were having a fentanyl overdose and it was just a panic attack. And, um, and we've had hospitals where the doc, where someone's having an overdose and instead of going into the room and giving them naloxone, they'll lock the door and wait to, for a, a hazmat suit person to come in because they're worried about dying from fentanyl. And this is a doctor who should know better that you're not going to go in there and inhale fentanyl and die, but they've, they've lost lives this way by sealing people in a room, waiting for a hazmat suit while the person's overdosed. Mm -hmm. So that's just what we're dealing with right now with fentanyl. But um, anyway, sorry, a little tangent there. No, that's fine. That's good stuff. So um, let's see. The next thing I was going to ask you was about your writing, because you've been covering the um, the mob for uh, it's been most of your career, right? Yeah, yeah. So my first, you know, I started writing for some online publications in the late '90s, and my first book, Cigar City Mafia, about the Tampa mob, uh, came out in in 2004. So it's been uh, been almost 20 years now. That's awesome. And, uh, and you do tours in Tampa sometimes, correct? Yeah, we do regularly. Uh, I run Tampa Mafia tours. Uh, we have a with my partner and um, and we have another tour guy that helps us out. We've been doing that now for over 10 years and that's as popular now as it's ever been. So we uh, we do, it's about an hour and a half, two hour walking tour of Ybor City, which is a historic neighborhood in Tampa. And we talk about the rise of the mafia. In fact, one of the spots we talk about is one of the headquarters of, a, of a, one of the largest narcotics operations in the 1920s in the South. Um, was headquartered out of this little storefront in Ybor City in, in Tampa. And it was primarily, again, um, narcotics that were coming up through Havana at that time and, and kind of dovetailing or, uh, in with the shipment of rum and other illegal liquor that was coming to the United States. That's really cool. I'm, I'm actually uh, really planning on taking that tour uh, every time yeah. I'm up there. It's been, but um. So and another, uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say another spot that's probably of interest to you is the, the Victor Licata house that we stopped by. You're, I'm sure you're familiar with the Victor Licata case. I'm not. No, I don't know a lot about the mafia. So, well, 
Victor Licata was a, um, in October of 1933, he had a psychotic break and he murdered his family with an ax. And uh, the house is still there where this happened. And one of the initial suspicions was that his father was involved in bootlegging and they thought it was potentially had something to do with the, with organized crime in Tampa. And it, it didn't because the mob in Tampa, when they were killing people is with a shotgun. <laughs> but um, long story short, the Victor Licata case, he was a paranoid schizophrenic, but there were rumors that he liked to smoke marijuana. I, I, and, I do know this guy. Yes. Yeah. So Anslinger used that case mm-hmm. as one of the catalyst cases for the federal prohibition on marijuana. Yep, they said he was uh, high on cannabis and he murdered his family. And yeah, that's what which is, yeah, obviously. Oh, it's crazy. Nothing to do with it at all. Yeah. No. And he said that marijuana is the most violence causing substance on the planet. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if you, anybody who smoked it knows that's a bunch of bullshit. But yeah, that, but yeah, so that's, um, that was in Tampa, though. I did not know. Correct. That. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was in Ybor City. Well, then ne- I'm definitely doing the tour next time I come up there. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, it's really fascinating. Now, so you've been writing um, about the uh, the mafia your whole your whole or for the last twenty years. Is there ever a time you're writing about something that you're scared of? You're just thinking like you should saying too much, or is it just because it's historical and in the past it's kind of like you can write about it? And have you ever been scared? No, I I really try to to talk about historical stuff. I try to back everything up, even when I get into more modern type things. Like in in the Hitman, I, I trace some of the these guys that were dealing drugs in Pleasant Avenue to some of the current heads of the mafia in New York. Um, I really want to make sure that I have, you know, whether it's documentation or law enforcement reports or, you know, interviewing people, I want to make sure I'm backing stuff up. Um, that that's really important to me, but generally mafia guys, and I've met people I've written about and they're kind of whatever, you know, they're, they're, they're fine. I'm not going to go writing about the Mexican cartels or, you know, with some of these incredible journalists, in some of these countries do, whether it's, um, I'll look at even like a more, you know, we'll call it, you know, upscale country, like, like uh, in Europe, in Malta, you know, these journalists getting killed by exposing organized crime. I mean, that's, that's not something I want to do, but I, I can't imagine the bravery of some of these journalists covering the cartels or some of these other organizations that literally are putting their life on their line you know, exposing this stuff. So I stick to historical. That's, that's my niche. That's where I'm, my comfort factor is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess if it's historical and if it's in the past and it's all documented, then there's nothing that you're exposing that they're going to be upset about. Yeah. Um, and the, the other thing is there's, and you see this in other countries, you see this like in Japan with the Yakuza, there's a weird cultural appreciation for the mafia that, you don't really see with other organized crime groups um, that it's, it's kind of part of American culture. And, and a lot of that has to do with, with the movies and, you know, popular culture itself, you know, even dating back to the old James Cagney movies of the 1930s, you know, gangsters were always a popular thing. So there's a mythology that's developed around them and, and people view that the same way. And it's funny because some ex wise guys I talk about, will will talk about how, there's these famous wiretaps from the late nineties where members of the DeCalvacante family. And I write about this in garden state gangland. You know, this is a New Jersey mafia family. They're on wiretaps com- comparing themselves to the Sopranos and like, which Sopranos are who, and that's yeah. who goes based on that. So, you know, that's one of the, the interesting things about writing about the mafia is you're also kind of ensconced in this pop culture realm where, you know, some of the other organized crime groups, 
at least in America, not so much. Now, if you go to those countries or like Russia with Russian organized crime, like I said, Japan with the Yakuza. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting. It's like it's a little bit of celebrity factor for them. So it's yeah. almost like they, they, they some might even appreciate being written about as long as it's not getting them arrested. Then, So I, um, this is this ex-gangster I, I, I know um, once mentioned something along the lines of, you know, anytime his name was in a paper, he'd buy a bunch of copies. And it's, it's kind of echoes that scene in The Sopranos when Christopher's name is in the paper and he buys the whole stack of them for everyone to say. Yeah, so, 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 so there's some truth to that. And that's one thing I was going to ask you is how does uh, Hollywood movies, you know, like The Godfather and shows like The Soprano, how do they contrast with reality? Um, how, how much of those is, is myth that Hollywood creates and how much is pretty close to reality? I, you know, I think The Godfather, you know, there is there are parts of that that are based on reality. It, it's obviously very fictionalized, very, you know, epic and phenomenal movies. Uh, for example, The Godfather 2, talking about the mafia moving into Cuba. Um, you know, very true. The mafia were significantly involved in pre-Castro Cuba. And, um, you know, they talk about how when Castro took over, you know, they're at that party in The Godfather 2 and they all leave the country that, you know, echoed what happened in real life. Um, but but movies, I think, like uh, Goodfellas is from people I've talked to, from what I've read, very close to kind of how it is. A lot of not so glamorous stuff, especially at the end when, you know, he's all cooked up and that whole thing. Um, it, you know, it's kind of a grind for some of these guys. And you, you'll see some movies like there's a scene in the movie Donnie Brasco where Al Pacino's looking for money and he's trying to break open a parking meter. I mean, you know, these guys, it's a, a long ways away from the epic Godfather type stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing I was going to ask you is um, do, if you had a favorite gangster movie, I know you said that uh, Goodfellas kind of got you into, into what, you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say Goodfellas as a, as a movie, um, you know, the Godfather series I love. Uh, I've really grown to appreciate Casino over the years. I think it's an underrated uh, Scorsese movie um, in terms of TV, obviously the Sopranos, but, but there's been a, a TV show recently. It's, it's been out the past few years. Uh, it's out of Italy. It's out of Naples called Gomorra. It's about the Neapolitan Comora, which is one of the largest Italian organized crime groups and, and almost exclusively drugs, cocaine. Um, and it's just incredible, unbelievably gritty, very violent, but uh, fantastic TV show that really kind of shows the mafia the total opposite end of the Godfather kind of glamorized. It's really street level and, you know, just super gritty. So very cool. Good morning. Have to check that out. Um, yeah. Um, so one another question is, uh, I was just curious, if you could go back in time, have a cigar and a bourbon with any of the gangsters you've written about, any of the people, the characters, you know, that is there a particular person that you would love to just sit down and be able to talk to, live or dead? Well, uh, yeah, I've written a lot about Tampa. So Santo Traficante Jr., who was a longtime Tampa mob boss uh, from the 50s through his death in 87. Um, but he spent a lot of time, he owned a lot of casinos in pre-Castro Cuba. So yeah, my time machine would be going back to like the Hotel Capri in 1958, maybe having a cigar and a bourbon with him then. Uh, yeah, some of them, um, you know, Meyer Lansky is another one, I, th I think from people I've known and family members I've talked to said he was very well read, very well spoken, very good conversationalist. Um, the flip side of that, I've heard some of the others, you know, weren't the brightest bulbs and <laughs> in the basket so maybe uh 
maybe wouldn't be, but I think uh, Santo Traficante and Meyer Lansky would be two. I, I think would be interesting from a, from a historical perspective to have a conversation with them because some of the stuff that they were involved in were pivotal to, you know, big, big parts of American history. And, and, and that's the thing I think a lot of people don't realize about the mafia is especially in the early part of the 20th century, how, how closely aligned they were with very big, even geopolitical things that were happening. Uh, yeah, they, and they had to be involved with uh, certain pay, payoffs of officers and being, and I was, I was wondering about that. I mean, you said, you know, the one that was very well read and then you have others that are just, you know, more, so it's like brains and brawn, but it doesn't take, we think of gangsters as being like the most violent wins, but it also has to be someone who knows how to use their brain. So is that a kind of a thing that you'll see reoccurring where you'll see like highly educated, well-read people that are just in that life have just been raised that way, but are, you know super educated and smart, but running. Yeah. And, and, and you'll say highly educated kind of street education. So, you know, people like Meyer Lansky didn't go to school, um, but, you know, they were very keen to make sure their sons went to college or their, mm. their kids were, didn't have to go into that life. Um, but you know, that's one of the things in, in the gangsters I've spoken to or someone that I know, even ones that, that didn't have a formal education past high school, some didn't even finish high school. Uh, there are there are certain subset of them that are well read and you know have some type of business acumen. And it, there was a great line. Um, so Harlan Blackburn, who was head of a, a group co- group called the Cracker Mob out of Orlando, and he was you know big time gangster for forty some years in Florida. And uh, his lawyer, during one of his last uh, sentencing before he passed away, his lawyer said, you know, had he been born under different circumstances, he would have been a great director of the Florida lottery. So, you know, some of them just by, especially in the early years, just by virtue of where they were born or didn't have the same opportunities or just came up a different way, you know, probably could have been uh, really successful. Uh, Jerry Katina, a a gangster nobody's ever heard of, a a gangster that lived into a his nineties uh, and barely spent any time in prison owned dozens of companies was, was heavily involved in all kinds of major business dealings in, in New Jersey. Um, it's a perfect example of someone that was really smart about what he did. He was kind of behind the scenes and didn't, you know, get out in front of the camera or strut down the street, like John Gotti or Al Capone kind of thing. Yeah. And I wonder how many businesses today that are very successful and legal, started as an illegal operation that they just turned it around and that they were built on the backbone of an illegal operation. Oh yeah. There, there are quite a few and um, you know, liquor distributorships are still some that around now that started, you know, right after prohibition. Um, Yeah. There, there are a lot. Um, Some of the gaming companies, uh, Bally gaming, that was a company that Jerry Katina had an interest in way back when, when it started, it's obviously, you know, publicly traded company right now. So it, but yeah, there are, there are a number of them that that got their start, either through investment of organized crime or actually started as organized crime ventures that kind of went legitimate over the time. Is any of the skyline and because uh, everybody talks about the skyline in mean, Miami was built by a cocaine? I don't know. I'm sure a lot of that's exaggeration. But is there any of the skyline in Tampa or anywhere you think comes from prohibition era era money or you know drug money? Not really in Tampa as much. Um, I, I know Miami, a lot of it was was financed and, and you know, through the banks, especially in the 80s during that kind of heyday of the, the cocaine era. 
Um, but yeah, Tampa, Tampa, not so much. It was, it was definitely more low key and um, things weren't quite as flashy uh, as they were <laughs> in Miami. For sure. was, there a, was there a heavier law presence in Tampa that would, would have cracked the whip a little harder than Miami? It wasn't necessarily a heavier law presence. Part of it was that the, the mafia in Tampa were a lot more under the radar. Um, they were way more heavily involved in illegal gambling than, than anything. Um, you know, they, there were some that were involved in drugs, but as the years went on, that kind of lessened. Uh, and by the time the eighties rolled around, they, they started and Santo Traficante dies in 1987, the people that follow him really start moving into more legitimate businesses. So you start seeing the mafia, unlike other cities where either law enforcement took care of the mafia in Tampa, it's just kind of faded away over time, attrition. So a lot of their sons and nephews didn't get into the family business. So as the old timers passed away, there was nobody there to, to take their place. So it kind of starts to fade away. But they might have also had some of the money passed down to them from those operations, but were put into legal markets. and legal Yeah. Markets. So some of the real estate you'll see early on, like Ybor City, some of the early uh, renovations of Ybor, you'll see some familiar names. And then, you know, that's been sold and, and you know, converted to, to other things over the years. Yeah. And I'm wondering how much of, so we talk about the drugs being a big part of the mafia, but also talking to you, I'm realizing that that was only one you know piece of the pie. Cause you, like you said, gambling was huge. There was racketeering and um, also protection going into a shop and say, I'll protect your shop from the other gangs. You got to pay me a kickback. So how much of the mafia early on, say from, you know, from their, when they first got into the United States to their heyday w- would have changed if drugs hadn't been if it never made the black market, if drugs had stayed in some form, one way or another, legal, would the mob have been nearly as powerful as they became? Without uh, the drugs? Yeah, I think they would have. And there's two, two reasons for that. Number one is they still had a, um, they were very diversified into what they did. So already by post-prohibition, you see them getting involved in trucking, the garment industry, labor, labor racketeering was really a big thing that kind of um, gave them the power. Uh, illegal gambling. Um, so if the drugs weren't there, I still think they would be able to fill that gap with the other rackets that they were involved in. And their political power base, where they derived their political power, was still there. Um, the other thing that would have helped them was if there was no Bureau of Narcotics, because the Bureau of Narcotics was the first uh, federal law enforcement organization to really say, hey, there's a national network of the mafia long before the FBI kind of freely admitted it. So the Bureau of Narcotics were, was the first federal agency that started really investigating the mafia at kind of a national level. So if the Bureau of Narcotics wasn't there from the federal perspective, that that might have benefited the mafia, you know, looking back in hindsight. Um, so, yeah, actually, if drugs were legal, they, they might have been potentially bigger. Uh, certainly would really? still have a lot of that. <laughs> That's crazy. Cause when I was reading um, Johan Hardy's book, he talks about, you know, when, when Harry Anslinger took over the Bureau of Narcotics, he, the first thing he did because alcohol prohibition was coming to an end. So to keep his division alive was outlaw the other drugs and immediately start stopping prescriptions from, for addicts from doctors and going after the doctors who were still prescribing opiates, shutting that down. And there was the theory that he was helping the mafia. It was, it was helping the mafia so much that he might've been a part you know, involved with the mafia, which, like I said, there's no actual evidence to back that up other than the mafia seemed to benefit from the black market. 
But like you said, he also went after the mafia and he was the first one. Cause I think a lot of people back then thought he was crazy. Thought the mafia was like, was nonsense. It wasn't a real mm-hmm. thing, Yeah. but he was like, no, it's real. And he, and if I'm not mistaken, right. When you said that the Bureau of Narcotics, he was, he was the head of that when they first went after the mafia, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, but now, now I might be double thinking myself maybe. Yeah. That it's, it's hard to say really. Um, one of the things that I do know is, um, is it George White? He was ahead of the Bureau of Narcotics for a while, correct? I'm not sure. It was. There was somebody, it wasn't Anslinger, but it was after him, who I know for a fact was meeting with mafia guys. Uh, he met with um, Traficante in, in Tampa. He was going around to different cities. Um, you know, and then then you could start getting into maybe I don't want to say conspiracy because it's true, but more ties between like some of the stuff that the CIA was doing with the mafia, anti-Castro stuff that kind of bleeds over into some of the early CIA involvement in drug trafficking, which is kind of goes down a little bit of another, you know, path, but there's, yeah, there's interesting ties there for sure. So it wouldn't surprise me if Anslinger was, you know, playing both sides. (laughs) Certainly. It could have been. Like I said, from what I've read, there's no actual evidence to support it. And it does seem like it's not not the case, that it just yeah. happened to work out that what he was doing was benefiting the mafia. But he he was just kind of aloof on the way that his drug policy was going to have such a negative impact. He was very anti-drugs. Um, he, it was you know, The book Chasing the Scream was based on the fact that when he was a, a young child, he heard his neighbors screaming. It was a woman screaming. And the, the husband ran down the stairs and gave him a note and said, run to the pharmacy. And he went and got these opiates from the pharmacy and went and ran back to the woman. And as soon as she took them, she stopped screaming. And from then he decided drugs were evil. He wanted no part of them. Mm. And that's when the author of the book, Johan Hari said he was basically felt like he was chasing that scream all around the world, studying the war on drugs and prohibition. Cause that's really where it began was when that kid heard that scream. Um, and it's hard to say if, if Harry Ensinger hadn't taken over the bureau, would prohibition still have happened on some level? And with the way that this country operates with our puritanical backbone and all that, it seems like prohibition was somehow inevitable. I would like to think it wasn't, but I just feel like it was here. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been. Yeah. And another thing I'm thinking of too, with the mafia, when you're talking about the, the drug thing, um, you know, had they not been involved in it, you know, one of the other interesting things is the, the reason, you know, the, there was the twofold reason that I, the one of them I mentioned earlier is law enforcement really started cracking down on them. Um, but the other thing is uh, they were getting out maneuvered by some of the other, you know, up and coming uh, uh, drug gangs. So um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to think if there wasn't a prohibition, how that would have been, uh, how that would have affected things. Yeah. it's Because, so. you know, the mafia were still involved in the liquor industry heavily after prohibition both through liquor distributorships, ownership of, you know, they owned a lot of bars and restaurants, which of course is a great way to launder money, you know, all cash business. So, you know, you wonder if, if they would have been involved in a, in a legal sense with, with narcotics in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Well, it's like, I wonder if we legalize uh, the cocaine trade, are we going to the car- the current cartels, are they going to keep the supply chains and become where we get the cocaine from? Are we going to try to shut them down and you know, how, how's that going to fold? But if you look at prohibition with alcohol, a lot of those suppliers did become the, the first alcohol companies, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of them that were making alcohol beforehand just went to the medicinal alcohol and then would switch back. Um, 
And then, you know, the other thing with, with alcohol too, is you had every other country in the world was producing it and it was legal. So, um, you know, there, there was no shortage of supply. It was just getting the supply to where, where the demand was. Yeah. That's what you were talking about in the, in the garden state book was, uh, which was, I found really fascinating. I didn't know a lot about Atlantic city, Atlantic city. And now I want to watch boardwalk empire, but um, it's uh, when you're saying that they were just basically, they could just come almost to the coast with these huge ships with booze and in, in international waters. And then these speedboats would just go out and grab it and take it to Atlantic city. And, and it, so was Atlantic city during prohibition, was it kind of a city that if you could just basically go and get drunk in bars and no one really cared as long as you were cool about it? Yeah, it was it was um, it was a resort community, and it was a lot more open. Some cities like that were a little were a lot more open as to where you can drink. Um, and, and Atlantic City was probably one of yeah. If you didn't make a spectacle of yourself, and because a lot of the local politicians were greased, you know, were paid off, and some of the local police were paid off. It's really fascinating. I think that's the reason alcohol prohibition did not work and why other drug prohibition it's not working either. But it's different because you don't have places you can just go and buy cocaine and heroin and party with your friends. It's not like you, know, you have to have a you know, sketchy guy or get it from, you know, this It's mm -hmm. not what it was with prohibition with alcohol. I think alcohol is just a universally enjoyed drug that most people enjoy to where even cops are going to be like, we'll turn the other way. Cause when we get off, we're going to have one ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. And I, and I think, I think you're definitely seeing that with marijuana, um, how that's just, just even looking at polls over the last 10 years, the way people's viewpoint of marijuana has changed just, you know, dramatically since the legalization push started. It has um, three, three fourths of Floridians want uh, our support cannabis legalization for recreational use. Um, Marco Rubio just responded to my letter saying that um, he does not support it. I was shocked there. <laughs> But um, we'll see uh, what happens. I'm sure he had. I'm sure he had absolutely no reason why he doesn't support it either. Oh, he gave me. He gave reasons. Not... It was uh, his biggest reason was because of the current drug crisis and what message it would send the kids. It's like don't call it a drug crisis because you're putting cannabis in the same pot as opioids, and it's not. Yeah. Opioids are the ones people are dying from, mixed with benzos and other things. Cannabis. If they'd switched to cannabis, you'd see the deaths go down. So putting those mm -hmm. together, but it's just it's all politics, right? Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think you're seeing, too, and um, you know, Nevada, for instance, because I, I go out to Vegas a lot. Um, I'm on the advisory council of the Mod Museum out there, which is a great, you know, fantastic museum, and it's right in downtown Vegas, perfect location for a Mod Museum. Um, but, you know, they, they have now, they're building, like, lounges and all kinds of stuff, um, like, actually, you know, instead of a bar, they're having cannabis lounges they're building, and and. I don't think you're seeing the issues that people, you know, the sky is falling gloom and doomers predicted as a result of, of the legalization of that. No, and you're not going to. And also, I really don't think you will if you legalize heroin either. Now, I, I, when I say that, I don't mean the same way we do recreational cannabis. No. But if somebody who's an addict could go to their doctor and get the drug they're addicted to, I feel like it's going to be a lot better than what, the way we're doing it right now. And it's strange when I started this podcast, I didn't, I don't think I believed that heroin was not something I was really interested in talking about. And then started the peace on drugs podcast and talked to opiate addicts and my whole perspective changed on the whole, the, the way we handle the drug problem in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And I have um, a, a friend of mine who I would recommend you reach out to be a great podcast guest, Seth Ferrante. Seth Ferrante. I feel um, like yeah, he I... did 20, 20 some years in prison for uh, dealing LSD and he's, he's doing a couple documentaries. Actually, uh, he has a documentary coming out called Dope Man about 
which I was interviewed for about the mafia's involvement in early uh, narcotics trafficking. Um, and one on LSD. And, you know, that's another thing like LSD and, and mushrooms, you're seeing a lot more about that coming out about, you know, this concept of microdosing and, and using that as an enhancement rather than, uh, you know, something where you're <laughs> tripping for 10 hours or whatever. But uh, so yeah, maybe there's a sea change in the way some of this is being viewed, at least. There definitely is. And um, another thing we're seeing is the decriminalization. And that's what the first my first focus as far as this is to destigmatize drug use. And we need to talk about decriminalizing the way Oregon did. Personal use. If you have a personal drug on you, how, do you, how does your local community want to handle it? It's one thing. Give them, give them a, a mandatory therapy if you want to handle it that way. But making it a crime is ridiculous. Let's say if someone wants to do cocaine and they're an adult and they have it on them, they're not a criminal and they don't deserve a criminal record. And that's the first thing we got to stop doing is arresting people for personal things like that. Yeah, I think there's a you know, definite argument to be made for that, for sure. And retroactive to people that, and I, th I think some states are, you're starting to see that with people that had nonviolent marijuana possession convictions being, you know, having their records expunged. You're not seeing it enough. And even in places like Colorado that have had recreational for a long time, anybody that has a criminal record from cannabis prior to being legal is uh, still, they still have a record. And same in Michigan. So it's it's same in all, pretty much all the states. And I know the, the in the MORE Act, they're talking about a federal expunging of cannabis records, but the act probably won't pass because they're going to piggyback too much bullshit onto the bill that the other sides won't agree on. And, these, you know, I, this piggybacking of bills is just so ridiculous. I don't know if you were, you were I'm sure you were voting in Florida when they had that. Do you want to ban offshore drilling and indoor vaping? Same bill. Same bill. <laughs> Um, I vape. So if I want to vape indoors, but I, I, the offshore drilling. So of course they got me to vote against my own interest because I chose the environment, but it's just, it's, those are two, you know, that's, that's how our country operates yeah. for some reason. Yeah. Well, Scott, it was so good talking to you and I'm enjoying your book. Thank you for sending it to me. And um, do you want to uh, say anything about your book? Give a quick plug where people can find it. Sure. Yeah. My latest book, Hitmen, uh, the mafia drugs and the East Harlem purple gang. Uh, uh, just, is just released. You can find it on Barnes and Noble, some local booksellers on Amazon uh, and my uh, Tampa mafia tours for anyone that's in the Tampa area. Uh, we don't do them in the summer because it's a little hot to be walking around in the middle of July in downtown Ybor. But uh, uh, from September through the end of May, we run the tours. So you can go to tampamafia.com. That's great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And it was good meeting you. And I can't wait to do your tour. I guess it'll probably be in September then or sometime after that. Yeah. Yeah. Just shoot me an email. Let you know when our next one is. I will. Sure. I look forward to it. Awesome. All right. Thanks Scott. again. Peace out. All right. All right. Peace, Nicks. Same as always. If you like what we're doing, go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter at the Peace on Drugs Podcast. And subscribe to our newsletter at www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe. And share it with your friends. Share the message. Be a part of the movement. We have to change people's minds on drug addiction, stigma, everything else that goes around. We need to work towards decriminalizing. And write your senator. Write your congressman. What's the harm that can come from letting them know where you stand and what you want the legislation to be, what you want what laws you want changed. That's what we can do with this podcast. That's what we can do with this movement. If you agree with me, and I know you do, 
then there's a little more we can do than going out and vote for the one candidate that's not going to make anything happen anyway. We can write our congressmen. We can write our senators. We can go to local rallies and meetings and stand up for something. Let's try and make a difference in this world. That's what we're doing, right? We're trying to make a difference. Thank you so much for joining me. I love you all. We're going to hand it over to Twiggy Branches to take us on out of here. Peace out. out. Doc.